evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory for our Stewart Public Evening Lecture. We also welcome those of you who are watching this podcast at iTunes U or streaming at www.as.arizona.edu. Uh, it's a cold but clear night, and the telescope will be open for viewing at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. Uh, I would also like to remind you of the schedule. We will have one more lecture two weeks from tonight. That's our string theorist from Harvard, uh, Andy Strominger. And then we'll take a break because the College of Science is doing something over at Centennial Hall on Monday nights. And then we'll start again after spring break, uh, uh, the third week of uh, March. Uh, there are no students, so I don't have to make that announcement. Um, if you'd like to be on our um, email list, if you're not on it, please feel free to put your name to it at the conclusion of the lecture. And uh, you can keep up to date with our newsletter and information of events here at Stewart Observatory. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to one of our postdoctoral fellows, Dr. Theodora Karalidi. Theodora is from Athens. And she received her degree, her bachelor's degree, in astronomy and physics at the University of Athens. But she did her graduate work in the Netherlands, master's degree at Utrecht, and then a doctor's degree in astronomy from Leiden. And she came here right from Leiden. She is a postdoctoral fellow here at Stewart Observatory who works on extrasolar planets. And I think I'll let her tell you the rest of what she's been up to. So without further ado, Dr. Theodora Karalidi, cloudy with a chance of life, looking for rainbows, clouds, and life on other worlds. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Okay, can you hear me? Yeah? Right. Okay. So thanks for coming, everybody. And today in the next 40, 50 minutes, we're going to talk about how we can find directly or indirectly, indirectly sorry, life on worlds other than our Earth. And before we're going to do that, we're going to take a small stop at our own solar system. Uh, this image is probably something you're all pretty familiar with, the nowadays eight planets of our solar system. And these planets, for quite some time, were the only planets humankind knew about. And some of them, like for example Uranus and Neptune, we learned about pretty recently. Now, the very interesting thing with our solar system planets is that even though there's only eight of them, there is a very great variety in the properties we meet in them. First of all, you have the outer gaseous giant planets, and then the small, rocky, inner, terrestrial planet, as we call them. But even if we zoom in one of these categories, the terrestrial planets, since life is what we're mostly interested in, we see a very big variation in the properties we meet in their surface and atmospheric properties. For example, you have Mars, a frozen desert planet with a very thin atmosphere and temperatures on its surface well below the freezing point of water. Then you have Venus inside the Earth's orbit, a hellish planet with a very thick atmosphere, poisonous to any form of life as we know it, and temperatures at its surface oversuiting 500 degrees Fahrenheit. 
And then Earth, the perfect mixture of liquid water oceans and continents and clouds, and the only place where life as we know it triumphs. So with all of this variation and only one planet with life, the question pops up, of course, are there any other planets like our own Earth out there? Is there somewhere else life? And this is not a recent question. The first time that it's been documented was already around 400 BC from ancient Greek philosophers. They were wondering back then if there can be other planets orbiting stars other than our sun, and if possibly one of them could have life. But unfortunately for those people, it took more than 2,000 years until part of that question could start being answered. So in 1996, Mayer and Colos discovered the first planet orbiting a sun-like star. And that was the beginning of the field of exoplanets, the a field that studies planets that orbit stars other than our sun. In just 20 years, our field has been booming. We have approximately 2,000 planets we have detected orbiting 1,249 stars, and some of these planets are actually in multiple planetary systems, like our solar system, only usually a bit more compact. Now, uh, with 2,000 planets, unfortunately, we still don't have one planet like our Earth. And that's something you can see in this graph here, where we plot the mass of the planets we have discovered in Jupiter masses as a function of their orbital period in day, so how long they take to complete a rotation around their parent star. And for some extra bonus information, we have the color of each and every one spot being its radius in Jupiter radii, with red being very big planets and blue very small planets. Now, most of these planets, as you can see, are very big planets and orbit pretty tight close to their parent stars. Some of them even need less than a day to make a complete rotation around their parent star. In comparison, our own Jupiter and Saturn would lie somewhere there in this plot, and our own Earth would be lonely in that empty corner of this plot. Now, Part of the reason why so far we have not found another Earth out there is that the instruments and methods we were using in the first years of our field are detecting easier, bigger planets that orbit closer to their parent stars. For example, one of the most famous methods, you've probably known of Kepler by now, is the transiting methods, or an eclipse method, if you wish. Uh, here, for example, you see Venus going uh, around uh, its orbit and transiting uh, our sun. And you see that because it eclipses the stellar disk, at some point we receive less light from the sun. The same trick we can do with a planet orbiting another star. And we get the planetary transit. So you see here the planet crosses the disk. So we get less light from the parent star. And we know there's something out there. We know there is another planet. Now, of course, the bigger the planet will be, the more of the light it will block. 
So it's the easier it is for us to observe there is a planet. And the closer the planet will be to the star, statistically easier it will be for us to observe the transit. And this makes, uh, helps partly detecting bigger and closer in planets. Now, uh, the transit method is an indirect method of detections. We never really see the planet itself there. We just know it exists because it blocks the light that comes from the parent star. My personal favorite way of detecting a planet is really taking a picture of the planet itself. And that is pretty hard. We have started getting the first pictures uh, relatively recently. Uh, here at the University of Arizona, we have some very smart people that make brilliant instruments that can actually do this. Uh, each and every one of these pictures is taken by people working here at the University of Arizona. And each and every one of these dots you see are actually planets that orbit other stars. Now, the problem is that they are pretty far away from their parent star. In comparison, for example, uh, here you see one of the famous planets, Theta Pectoris b, and the distance of Saturn to our own sun. So they're pretty far out, and this means that they don't have very good chances of being able to host life on their surface. First of all, they are gaseous giants, very hot, but even if they had a moon potentially that could have life, it is probably not what we call habitable. And the reason behind it is because in astrobiology, the existence of life is intertwined with the existence of liquid water on a planet. And for liquid water to exist on a planet, we need to be just at the perfect distance from a parent star, not too far out because water will freeze on the surface, not too far in because everything will boil away. And this results in a very uh, short range of distances, what you see here as green zones, where we have the so-called habitable zone, or Goldilocks zone if you prefer, where conditions are just perfect for us to have liquid water on the planetary surface. Of course, the colder your star, the closer to the star the zone is, the hotter the star, the further out it is. Now, for our sun, for example, the habitable zone is this blue zone here. Uh, you can see that our Earth lies comfortably inside the correct distances where liquid water can exist on the planetary surface, and we have water here. Venus, on the other hand, is just inside of the habitable zone. All water that was possibly there boiled away. Mars is inside the habitable zone, but unfortunately it has a very thin atmosphere so it couldn't sustain any liquid water that could possibly be on the surface. Now, all of the planets we have directly imaged, though, would lie somewhere out here. So they're very far away from their parent star to be able to have liquid water on the surface. Now, uh, Most of the planets we have discovered up to date are like 
this guy here, discovered in 2008, and uh, he's lying approximately 30 times away from its parent star, uh, like as the uh, Saturn from our sun. If we want to detect another planet, like our Earth, that is habitable, it would be lying somewhere in there, inside that blob of light that uh, is the parent star. And that is a very difficult task for us. We have to try to mask away that huge blob of light to detect the one uh, terrestrial planet. And to give you an idea of how difficult this is, it's a bit like you want to observe a candle that somebody is holding on top of a lighthouse. And he accidentally forgot the lighthouse on. <laughs> but that's not enough. You try to observe it sitting in Tucson, Arizona, and that lighthouse is somewhere halfway from Los Angeles to San Francisco. For each and every one photon you would be getting from the planet, approximately 100 billion photons come from the parent star. So it's a very hard task. But we're trying to get there. One of the ways we're trying uh, to fix this is by using masks. So pretty much what you would instinctively do if a very bright light shines on your face, try to hide it away. We're trying to do something similar with the starlight. We're trying to mask it. And that would allow the background of the star to become dimmer and the planet to pop up. Now, another thing we can do is try to use polarized glasses. Uh, pretty much exactly the same technology your polarized glasses use in order to try to detect the planet even easier. Now, uh, because polarization is a bit of a hard topic, I'm going to give a very brief introduction. Um, so the idea is that light consists of photons, and photons you can think of like waves that vibrate, their electric and magnetic fields vibrate. If you have natural light, like the light that comes from the sun, all photons tend to vibrate in all random directions. They don't have any preference. On the other hand, if the photons coming from the sun, for example, scatter in the gases of a planetary atmosphere or on a surface, the photons can get a preferential direction of vibration. And then we're talking about polarized light. And what we're using is uh, the degree of polarization that tells us what percentage of the photons prefer to vibrate in a specific direction in comparison to the rest. Now, if we're uh, using polarized light, uh, we can easily detect a parent star. And the reason for this is that the light that comes from the parent star will be unpolarized. So photons, like gray lines you see here, don't have any preferential direction of vibration, so they're all over the place. While the same light scattering on a planetary atmosphere will get a preferred direction of vibration. This means that if we use polarizers, uh, polarizers you can think of acting like blocks, that if you oriented them correctly, they will allow polarized light to pass. And if they're orientated in the wrong direction, we'll completely block it. Well, uh, by orientated correctly, we can get all of the light from the planet to pass. So we get a 
perfect, in theory, detection of the planet completely getting rid of the parent star. Of course, nothing is perfect ever. In reality, we will still get some of the star inside our picture, but still, uh, the polarization will help us get an extra three to four orders of magnitude in contrast ratio, which means that now, instead of one photon from the planet fighting against 100 billion photons from the parent star, it's just one photon against 100 million, or even 10. So it is a bit easier. Now, assuming we have gotten the instruments and we have managed to detect the planet, we're faced with the next challenge. And that is that, like you see seen already, the first detections we have are planet Earth with potentially life takes only one pixel in our image. And that one pixel has to tell us everything there is to know about oceans, continents, clouds, and life out there. It's a hard task. So this is part of what I've been trained to do. So unlike most astronomers you probably met, I've never touched a telescope. I always make models. And my job is to make models like uh, a model of our Earth, put continents and atmospheres, uh, assume where they lie in comparison to their parent star and us observing it, and bring their signal down to one pixel and try to see what that one pixel has kept from everything I put in there. Uh, like me, there's a lot of people out there, and we're all eventually working with one goal, try to find life potential on another planet. And that we can do directly or indirectly. One of the uh, kinds of life we can detect directly is plants. And plants are unique among most of the life because uh, they have a very unique property. If we plot the way they reflect light as a function of wavelength or colors, this is the part of the spectrum our eyes are sensitive to. And you can see here around the green a uh, peak of intensity, which means that in that part, lights, uh, plants reflect more light, which is why, for our eyes, plants are green. If you notice, though, just further off where our eyes are sensitive to, there is this huge peak of ref re reflectivity, sorry, that means that our eyes are actually lying to us. Plants, in reality, are red. And this change of ref reflectivity is pretty unique to plants. And that means that if we observe another planet that shows this, it could potentially have plants on its surface. And to give you an idea of how much our eyes lie to us, NASA, a couple of years ago, made this pretty picture where we have the picture of the Earth, as our eyes tell us it is, and how an alien would probably see it is, a pretty red planet. Another kind of life we can try to directly detect is microbes, or the purple Earth. The idea behind this is that in the first years of development of life in the Earth, when microbes were kind of occupying everything, the Earth should have looked more purple. And that because in a similar way that plants reflect more red light, 
the microbes reflect more purple light. So if we would observe a similar trend, it could be we have detected the planet where life starts thriving. Now, uh, the easiest way to try to detect life is indirectly, not really looking for life itself, but for its impact on the planet, the atmosphere. And that we do by using the light that comes from the parent star and the effect it has, um, uh, of what the effect the atmosphere has on it. Uh, this is something you've probably all seen before. It's the spectrum of our sun. So all colors or light we receive in what our eyes can see from the sun. And uh, as you can see, there's a lot of color missing. There's a lot of black gaps in between. And this is because uh, this light has met a lot of gases molecules on its way to our uh, instruments. And each and every one of these gases interacts in a very unique way with the light that falls on it. It will absorb uh, light from the spectrum in as a unique way as a fingerprint is to a human being. Which means that if we get a spectrum from another planet, we can actually tell what its atmosphere consists of. This, for example, is a spectrum of uh, reflected light from our own Earth. And as you can see, our atmosphere has thankfully lots of water and oxygen, and also quite some ozone, which is what protects us from the UV radiation. And these are hints that our planet is habitable. If we would do the same thing for Venus in the yellow line here, or Mars with the red, you see that their spectra look very differently. There is no hint of water like on Earth, and there is no hint of oxygen either. So if we would observe another planet, and we would get its spectrum, and it would look more like Venus or Mars instead of Earth, we would know it cannot host life. There is no water there. If, on the other hand, it looked more like Earth, it could potentially have life. Another thing we can do is try to indirectly, again, look for life by trying to see the liquid water clouds in the exoplanetary atmosphere. And that we do with the idea that the basic difference between Earth, Mars, and Venus is the existence of liquid water in the Earth's atmosphere through precipitation on the surface and back. Now, to look for liquid water clouds, we can use something you're all familiar with when in the very random cases it rains in Tucson and there's some sunshine. You can see a rainbow. Now, the rainbow, you may not know, but is a very highly polarized phenomenon. So in this video here, you see this guy holding a polarized filter, the same thing your polarized glasses have. And you see, as he rotates it, there are positions where we get no light from the rainbow at all, and positions where we get a lot more light, because it's very highly polarized. Now, this makes the rainbow very interesting. And uh, it's even more interesting because the rainbow is not only produced 
by rain droplets, but the clouds themselves can actually produce rainbows. And that's something that colleagues that work in earth sciences have known and used for quite some time already. If they want to see uh, if a cloud that's coming is liquid water and brings rain, or it's ice cloud. Here, for example, you see a picture from a friend satellite, Holder, and it's flying on top of a cloud. And in the total light, what your eyes will see, just a white cloud. It could be anything. If uh, we put our polarized glasses on, though, you see that around 140 degrees, these clouds have a very strong peak of intensity. They're very bright. Now, if you think of what happens when you see a rainbow here on Earth, you will always have the rainbow on one side, and the sun will be on your back. And this is 140 degrees. So this means that these are actually the rainbows of the liquid water clouds. And in a similar figure here, again from Boulder, you see another liquid water cloud. And you see another highly polarized feature here, but at the wrong angles, which is an ice cloud. So in this way, we can separate liquid water and ice clouds. Now, we know that if we fly on top of a cloud and look down, we can see if it's liquid water or not using the rainbow. Of course, the question is, can we use the same thing in our one pixel planet? All of the clouds and all of the clearings down to one pixel. And that's what I've been working on during my grad years. And it turns out we can. So uh, making lots of different models of Earth-like planets, different cloud compositions. Um, you, uh, it turns out the rainbow is very robust. If uh, we use uh, normal flux, so what your eyes can see, and you would see a terrestrial planet orbiting around its parent star. The parent star would be somewhere in here, but I have removed it because it would blind you normally. You see uh, the intensity of the planet changing because you see different faces. You have reflected light, so it's a bit like you see from the moon, from a full moon to a completely dark moon, and so on. If we put our polarized glasses on, though, we start to see the rainbow. And actually, the rainbow is so robust that we just need slightly more than 20% of the surface of the planet to have liquid water clouds on top of it, and we can detect it already. And in a graph version, so we plot now as a function of wavelength or color and the planetary face angle, so from a fully illuminated planet to a completely dark side of the planet, the degree of polarization, so again, what percentage of the photons are polarized, you see this peak here that changes location with wavelength, which is a rainbow peak. This feature is unique to liquid water clouds on an atmosphere. If we would do the same thing for Venus, for example, with its sulfuric acid clouds, what we would get is this. Now, the rainbows are robust, but again, nothing in nature is easy. So ice clouds could pose a very serious threat to us. First of all, they also produce rainbows, but they're at the wrong angle, so that it's not important. 
But our observations on the Earth's atmosphere show that if an ice cloud is optically thick enough and it's on top of a liquid water cloud, it can completely mask the existence of the water cloud. We will not see a rainbow. So the next question we had to face is, can actually somebody know that our Earth has liquid water clouds, or are the ice clouds in the atmosphere enough to completely destroy the rainbow signal? It turns out the rainbow is very robust. Uh, as I said before, we just need approximately 20% of the surface to have a liquid water cloud. And even when about half of these clouds have a thick ice cloud on top, the rainbow will still survive. Now, if you think that at any random moment, approximately 60 to 70% of the Earth's surface is covered by a water cloud, and definitely less than that is covered by a thick ice cloud, this means that if out there there is an alien creature that tries to find out if our planet is habitable, and if he, she, or it is smart enough to use polarization, they will know that our planet has liquid water clouds and it's habitable. Now, all of this is actually um, pretty futuristic, unfortunately. So far, we're only discovering planets like this guy here, a giant, hot, gaseous planets. And the detection of the next Earth will take a decade or two, hopefully. Now, in the meantime, we have to do something. We have to try to prepare ourselves so that the moment the next Earth is there, we directly can characterize it. We can directly say if it's habitable or not. And here at the University of Arizona, uh, we're working on training uh, for that future by using objects like this guy here, the so-called brown dwarfs. Brown dwarfs are objects that are in between stars and giant planets. They are similar in size to Jupiter, only they can be considerably hotter. So uh, their temperatures can vary from approximately 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit all the way down to Jupiter temperatures. And because we like categorizing things in astronomy, we have split them, of course, in categories. Uh, the most interesting thing of uh, brown dwarfs is that they have a wealth of clouds in their atmospheres. And we're not talking about liquid water clouds. We're talking about exotic silicate and iron clouds. And they create very dynamic atmospheres uh, where uh, lots of weather phenomena are observed. And we can use them to learn how to characterize the weather in exoplanets in the future. For example, in this figure here, you see observations taken with Hubble Space Telescope from one of the professors uh, in a Stewart Observatory. And you see a full rotation of one brown dwarf around itself. And what you can see is that the total light we receive from the brown dwarf, as it rotates around its axis, changes with time. Initially, we have lots of light coming towards us, then something blocks our view, then light starts picking up again, then something blocks it, 
And we know there is not another planet out there. So there has to be something related with the atmosphere of the object itself. And what we think it is, it's some sort of a spot, like the ones you see here, that's rotating in and out of you, changing the amount of light we receive. And uh, we have been working on making a tool that can actually use the light we get from a brown dwarf, a giant exoplanet, or in the future, terrestrial planet, as a function of time, to create the maps of these atmospheres. And uh, we have created the tool, and we, of course, had to test if it works, because I could tell you it works, and you would have to believe me, but that would not work very well. So um, there's one planet in our solar system that has spots similar to what we envision brown dwarfs to have, and that is our Jupiter, with its great red spot that you probably all know. And approximately two years ago, uh, one of uh, the astronomers of Stuart Observatory got Hubble time to observe Jupiter over slightly more than two complete rotations. And we used these observations. So here on the left, you see Jupiter rotating around its axis. And we collapsed it down to one pixel. And you see the integrated signal we get from Jupiter as it rotates around its axis. Now, this shape looks like a lot of uh, the curves we get from Brandorfs as well. We see that at some point, there is more light coming from Jupiter when the great red spot comes in view. Then it goes away, and we receive less light, and things change all the time. So we use this curve here to try to see if our code could recreate the map of Jupiter. And it does. It works. So we have a first tool to make maps of other planets. You can see we uh, find correct location for the great red spot. There is uh, this little guy here, the oval BA, that we cannot locate because it rotates with exactly the same uh, period as the uh, great red spot and is so close to it that it just uh, affects our result by finding a slightly greater spot. And of course, rotationally symmetric features like the dark poles or bands and zones you see here, we cannot detect because as the planet rotates around its axis, nothing changes. So they don't leave any distinctive signal in our uh, curves. So uh, in this way, we start making the first maps of other worlds out there. This, for example, is a map of the Gaia SOU before uh, here. This is its map. We have at least three very large spots some darker, some bright, that rotate in and out of you. Now, another similar map you've probably seen approximately two years ago now uh, from uh, Dr. Crossfield that's working in LPL here, which is from Lumen 16b, one of our two uh, more nearby brown dwarfs. And they made the first map of this uh, brown dwarf uh, and you see there's all sorts of different uh, surfaces. So you see there are some bright surfaces and a very big dark surface and other bright and dark surfaces coming in and out of you. 
And it all hints to a very dynamic atmosphere. Uh, there's lots of weird weather phenomena happening out there. And this was the first map. But of course, it would be very interesting if we could repeat this a bit later and see if things have changed. And we have gotten observations from half a year after these observations were made. And we also made a map of the same brown dwarf using our code. And you can see that while there is this persistent, very dark spot on the atmosphere, other spots have changed. So there is actually weather on this atmosphere. So to sum up, uh, right now we're trying to use very big, bright objects like brown dwarfs and giant exoplanets in order to try to learn how to f easiest and safest characterize exoworlds. And we hope that by learning how to do this in the not so far future, we will be able to detect the first exo-Earth and be able to directly tell if there is water clouds there, how the weather looks on the planet, and if there's potentially life out there. So, any questions? <laughs> Thank you very much, Theodora. We have plenty of time for your questions. Any questions for Dr. Carlitti? Nicely done, thank you. Um, I'd like to know, do the brown dwarfs go around a star? So most of them not. They are free floating, and that's what actually makes them even better targets. They're just, uh, don't have a parent star, so we're not blinded from it. And then because they're very hot, as I said, they can reach 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, they emit so much thermal radiation that they're very easy, relatively, for us to observe. Question here. Uh, you talked about life as we know it dependent or contingent upon water mm -hmm. is a basic factor. Can there be life as we don't know it based upon something other than water? Uh, potentially, yes. But at least in astronomy, we're focusing more on what we know because we have observations of its effects on the atmosphere and the signal of planet Earth. And what we don't know, potentially biologists can hypothesize and give us some feedback, but until then. Okay, but it's very, it's very contingent upon, our definition of life mm -hmm. is dependent upon the function of water. Yes. But can we accept that there might be life as we don't know it that isn't based on water? I think there have been a number of experiments. I remember a couple of years ago, I think, on life using, for example, arsenic instead of carbon. But okay. in astrobiology, at least, on the detection of life from the space, we're mostly using water-based life. Can I ask you a second question? Yeah, sure. The four inner planets are all terrestrial and the four outer planets are all gas, and they're all much bigger. Why are the inner planets terrestrial and the outer planets gas, and is there a relationship between their bigness or largeness and the fact that they're gas? Yes, yeah, so uh, the idea is that these planets, even though I'm not an expert on uh, planetary formation, um, the idea is that the planets uh, formed at different times. Uh, first, we had the creation of the uh, gas giants, 
uh, at the very early stages of uh, our planetary nebula having still lots of gas, so they could accrete it and make these gases giants. And then our terrestrial rocky planets formed, but there was hardly anything left inside. And uh, I think there's hundreds of millions of years between the formation of these two groups. But, Um, when you're talking about your one-pixel photographs, <clears throat> excuse me, um, are you photographing just when it's in transit across the face of the star, or can you photograph it in all its phases as it orbits? So when we do direct imaging, we don't do transits. Uh, uh, the idea is uh, with direct imaging, if you would have a planet that's close enough to potentially transit, when you're close enough to the star, you will be completely blinded by the star itself. So the best mass you can make, the best polarimeter on top of that, it will always have a blind uh, angle where, that you cannot see. And that's approximately, I think, 20 degrees from the center of the star, plus minus. So you will never be able to really see the transit. This gentleman always has a question. Um, let's say hypothetically you have a star which has one-fifth of the sun's mass, which would more likely be a red dwarf. And um, it has a planet. Um, and its Goldilocks zone would therefore be much closer to, to that sun. Because of its proximity, close proximity, um, just the way the moon is showing the same face toward the Earth, the probability would be pretty high that that planet would also be showing its same face side, same side mm -hmm. toward the parent uh, red dwarf star. In such a scenario, what would be the probability of life establishing itself because it would be constantly hot on one side, constantly cold on the other. And what would your modeling work have to say to elucidate that? Okay. So uh, this is a part of work that's been done by colleagues. I've never done uh, tidal locking, uh, which is like the scientific term we use for this, uh, always one face facing the parent star. Now, there are models that suggest that the existence of almost a minimum amount of atmosphere will save the planet from tidal locking, that it will be able to keep it spinning always. If, unfortunately, there is tidal locking, uh, it can happen that the atmosphere collapses, so there is no atmosphere, there cannot be any life as we know it. 
But there is also small hope, even in that case, that because of winds, you get the atmosphere circulating and not keeping completely one side hot, the other one freezing out, and the atmosphere collapsing. So maybe you could have life. Any other questions? Yes. What kind of, excuse me, what kind of sensors and detector materials and uh, wavelengths are you guys specifically looking at? Like, what are the sensor compositions? What are they looking like? Uh, the compositions, I would have no idea. Like, because <laughs> what kind of detector materials do you know if you're using Mercad Tel or? As I said, I've never been close to a telescope professionally. Okay. I, I always have my computer and <laughs> make my models, so I couldn't help you with that. Okay. I actually don't know the answer to that question either. Other questions? Okay. One more. Hi, can we expect that as our photography ability um, increases in the future that we'll be able to look at these planets on a multiple pixel level? Or is it always going to be one pixel? I think even at least the abilities I know our telescopes have, we will always have one pixel. Hmm. Because we're talking about huge distances. Any other questions? Yeah, you want to ask one more? Okay. Can you pass it over to him, please? Thanks. This is more of a philosophical question. <clears throat> um, the ultimate aim of what you're doing and, and other astronomers are doing is looking for life on distant worlds. So my philosophical question is, do you run into minor or major oppositions from, let's say, fundamentalist religious groups of any faith? I've never had the luck to <laughs> have any religious fundamentalist, but, yeah. I have a sort of a philosophical question as well, and no disrespect, but why are you doing this? Why are we looking for life as we know it in exoplanets at all? I mean, they're so far away. What's, what's the point of it all? It's interesting, mm -hmm. but what's the point of it all? Well, my personal opinion is that I would like to see if this accidental experiment of life on Earth has happened in other places as well. <laughs> yeah, it's more a thing a bit, I, potentially planet Earth is doomed on the way we treat it, so I would like to hope that somewhere out there there's other life that doesn't doom itself. <laughs> but the whole point of what we do in science, right, is especially astronomy, the most academic of the sciences, is, you know, we, we want, does it, is it really going to affect your life if we know that the universe was 14 billion years ago or 10 billion years ago or that there was a Big Bang or there wasn't? It's just like, you know, it's, it's trying to understand the universe around us um, because we're self-aware and we want to know why. Um, I have some bad news. Well, you know that the... Uh, the university doesn't open for students until, uh, until Wednesday. But my chief telescope operator said she had assigned someone to open the telescope, but there's no one there. 
So I, for those of you who were planning on looking through the telescope, I'm sorry, but I don't have a telescope operator tonight. Uh, but um, I hope that I will see you two weeks from now when Andy Strominger will be here to talk about string theory. And you saw that event we're doing on, on Friday night. And there I will have a telescope operator. I'm going to make sure. But we're doing an open house on Edgar Allan Poe. And at 5 o'clock, we'll look at the moon. Uh, there will be meteorites and hot chocolate in the uh, main lobby. I will, I will be doing with an English professor and a musician. We're going to perform two of Poe's poems to planetarium uh, uh, visualizations. And then there will be a brief lecture on one of Poe's uh, science fiction stories about going to the moon. And some high school students are doing something, I'm not quite sure. But it's just a big event that the Poetry Center is doing together with Stewart Observatory and Lunar Planetary Lab. And that will be between, it's an open house, uh, between 5 and uh, 8 o'clock on Friday night. No basketball game Friday night. And, uh, but the planetarium performance will start at 6 over at the Flandreau Planetarium. So, without further ado, let's thank Dr. Carliti one more time, and I hope to see you in two weeks.